The title of this morning's message is Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug. Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug. Proverbs 15 verses 13 through 15 will be our text. It is not an exposition so much of this text, but this is the foundational truth of God's Word that we will be working from as we consider the topic. I confess this is a topical sermon on Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug. Let's read the Word of God together. Proverbs 15 verses 13 through 15. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Dear saints, I wish you a merry Christmas. I want your Christmas to be merry. I want your Christmas to be full of joy. I want your life to be merry, to be full of joy, because God became flesh, because Jesus came to suffer and die for sinners and rose again conquering sin and death. And in this hour in our nation's history, in our world's history, we need merry hearts. We need to stand out from the crowd, the crowd who are full of fear, the crowd that is terrified, the crowd that is worried, the crowd that is stressed, the crowd that has given itself over to perpetual fear. And become messengers of fear perpetually as well. We in this hour need to be men and women, Christians with merry hearts. That the world might ask us about the difference that's within us. And I will confess that this is not just unique to this time in history, but every holiday season. In a fallen world, we will find in the busyness of life, we'll find in all the planning for merriment that we can sometimes lose a merry heart because sin affects everything. Everything. Isn't it tragic? Isn't it sad how sin invades everything? And the more people you gather together, the more sinners you have gathered together. So you get all your family together and you've got more sinners there and you've got more sin there. And as much as you like to think that you can contain the sin for the family gathering, hold it back, I mean, certainly at Christmas, oftentimes the sin yet breaks out and merriment suffers. And there are memories, of course, of past sins and the ramifications thereof and of lost loved ones around the holidays that threatened to steal away our merry heart. And yet, the Lord would have us to have merry hearts. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. A merry heart, a heart full of joy, a heart full of gladness, a heart full of peace that surpasses understanding through the Prince of Peace ruling in the heart, produces a cheerful countenance. It comes out. Now, I'm not the cheerful countenance cop. I'm not going to go around and check each one of you at all times and make sure you have a cheerful countenance and bring due rebuke upon you if you do not. There are certainly points in life, times, where we might not have a cheerful countenance. But by the grace of God, as a rule, our lives should be marked by merry hearts. Because we are victors in Christ. In fact, we are more than victors in Christ Jesus. The Prince of Peace, who has said to us, my peace I give unto you. And our future is bright. It is bright. The future of our government is bright. Because Christ is 
is king. And he reigns even now. And he is coming again. And he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. And that ultimately is our government. The government of Christ. And he's already reigning in all the events of this earth. He is sovereign. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing that comes to pass does not come through the hand of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ultimately for his glory and for the blessing of his saints. We know that, but we don't always feel that. And thus our merriment suffers. And so a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. We need to pray that God would grant us a merry heart. We need to pray that the truths that we know, we are more than victors in Christ. That love has come down. The simple truth of John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Him through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He gave Him upon the cross. He took upon flesh that His flesh would be pierced for our iniquities. He pronounced the payment of sin finished. It is finished. He bowed His head. He gave up His Spirit. They laid Him in a tomb that could not hold Him. On the third day, He rose again, conquering sin and Satan and death forever. For all those who are in Christ, for all those he pronounced to telesty over, it is finished. Hell shut permanently, sealed off through the cross of Christ. Hell shut, heaven open permanently. In fact, we are declared to be pillars in the kingdom of God. You can't get more permanent than a pillar permanent citizenship in the kingdom of God as not just citizens with the rights of citizens beneath the king of kings and the lord of lords but children of God and as much as parents like to plan good birthdays and parents like to plan a good Christmas celebration for their children our father is the perfect father and our savior is the perfect savior and in John 14 remind you, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And in my Father's house, where you are welcome, there are many mansions. And so a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. When these truths abide in our heart, when these truths rule in our heart, when the truth, Jesus Christ, the Savior, rules in our heart, it makes a cheerful countenance. There is power in this truth as it reigns within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Consider briefly the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When the Spirit reigns within us, We have a merry heart. We're full of the love of God, the love of neighbor, and joy. Joy. This is the Christian demeanor. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that we all who are in Christ possess. This is not some extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not some apostolic gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you to go back and try to pull into our current age. No, this is the present power and reality of the Holy Spirit's work in believers. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. But by sorrow of the heart, the Spirit is broken. By sorrow of the heart. There are things in this world that are sorrowful, that are terrible, undeniably so. And yet the Lord says, my peace I give unto you. He says that he gives us in Christ peace that surpasses understanding. And he tells us in Philippians 4 how to get that and keep that, which I preached on a few weeks ago. Go back and listen if you didn't get that. It's online. Hold fast to that peace that God will 
give you. He will give it to you if you'll just go get it. and Hold fast to it through His means. By sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. Don't revel in sorrows. Don't abide in sorrows. Don't concentrate on sorrows. Don't focus on the sorrows. Now, there are seasons, again, where you must. It's a sorrowful season. And no one would bemoan you that. I'm not a sorrow cop either. We need to be gracious and compassionate. And yet we cannot stay there. We must move on. And we must always move on toward Christ. Always move on toward the kingdom to come. As we pray, Thy kingdom come. We are a forward-looking people. We're not perpetually looking back. We can all look back and see suffering. We can look back and remember suffering. We can look back and remember sin and the ramifications thereof, our own and others. Or by the grace of God, we can persist stubbornly looking ahead to He who conquered sin, fixing our eyes upon Jesus and pressing on the upward way. Verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. There's fool's food everywhere. It's abundant. It's just abundant. And in the world, of course, in the temporal earthly sense, if you eat fool's food excessively, you'll kill yourself. (laughs) There was a documentary made about eating McDonald's three times a day and the terrible health effects. It was kind of scary. I was shocked that it would be that bad for you. The man was essentially dying. Now, a little McDonald's is fine. Fine Irish-American establishment. I know it's Scottish, supposedly, but I think it's really Irish. Anyway, point being, you eat junk, you die. Physically. It's true spiritually as well. And there's junk everywhere. Eat me, eat me, I'm tasty. You want some of this? Come get a hold of this. Give me your attention. Give me your time. Fill your heart with this. Fill your mind with this. Try to find satisfaction in this. There's junk food everywhere. The mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. And there's many varieties thereof. I won't go into all of them. But let us not be fools feeding perpetually on foolishness. Consider comedy. So much of this world's comedy is is just evil, frankly. It's just evil. It's not just foolish, it's evil. But even if you pull back from the evil to foolishness, you can get a cheap laugh off of the foolishness. And I'm not saying you know, a, little, a little fun, a little comedy is a bad thing. But if that's where you're finding, trying to find your joy, and you always have to be laughing, it always has to be light, then we make ourselves to be bobble-headed idiots. We need to be sober-minded, says the Scripture. Sober-minded. Not that we can't laugh. We're not morose. We're not the walking dead in Jesus. No, we have joy, but we're sober-minded. We don't have joy in lies, joy in perversion, joy in that which God hates. And we need to check our joy a little bit, even in just foolishness. So the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. That one was pretty obvious. How about this? Feeds on foolishness. You put your hope and trust in your home, in your bank account, in your retirement account, in your stocks, in your bonds. It's foolishness. Now, to be diligent in those areas and to receive those things as gifts from God who gives every perfect gift as the perfect giver, That is righteous. But when you start to put your hope in those things, you'll know it because if something happens to any of those things, you lose hope. You lose joy. You lose a merry heart and it seriously affects your countenance. The same with our nation. The same with our freedom. The same with our jobs and job security. These are all gifts from God. And when we receive them as such or thankful for them as such and blow up things on the 4th of July in that spirit, thank you, Lord, for such a free and great nation. 
then that's good and fine. When we covet these things and feed on them and put faith in them, then we will lose a merry heart and a cheerful countenance when these things are threatened. And it becomes a fool's food. The mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. These things are passing away. I mean, Elder Dale alone, who is faithfully serving us and loving our children in children's church right now, so I can say whatever I want about him. (laughs) Elder Dale alone has lost and gained job after job and provided for his family and done quite well over the years because he, he has a heart for startups, for these new struggling companies. He likes to get in there and fight it out and write it down to the end if need be. Or move on to the next one, because that one's up, it's established, it's growing. That's been much of his career. And the Lord has blessed him. And sometimes there's been an interim in between, and he's painted or done this and that, and he's waited on the Lord, and the Lord opens up another door. We're not guaranteed a career in one field. We're not guaranteed a life in one house. The mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Let's not put our hope where hope doesn't belong. It's fool's gold. It's fool's gold. We're not guaranteed the people around us right now. We're not guaranteed them. We're not guaranteed to have our children tomorrow, our spouse tomorrow, that our parents will show up next year at Christmas or even make it this Christmas. People die. It's a fallen world. We're not guaranteed that the China virus won't kill us. It's unlikely. It might. This is life in a fallen world. Life in a world where people make diseases in labs. And where sin has brought disease and death and destruction in a variety of ways. And the judgment of God because of that sin. And so let us not misplace hope. You have health, praise God. You lose health, praise God for the health you once had and pray to God that he'll grant it. But at the end of every day, no matter what we have or have lost, we must, by the grace of God, say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 15, all the days the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. There's various ways you can understand that first part, 15a, all the days the afflicted are evil evil, I'll give you what I think it most likely is referring to, all the days the afflicted are evil. When you consider yourself the afflicted, when you focus on all your afflictions, when you keep looking back and refuse to obey God and look ahead and press on toward glory, when you refuse to be anxious in nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God, then you will be afflicted and your days will be evil and you're bringing it down on your own precious life, on your own abused psyche. It's self-abuse. Oh, that God would free us from that. All the days the afflicted are evil. I think in the context that's likely the meaning. Another possibility is, is that there, there are people who are just afflicted and, and their days are evil. They live in a time, they live in a place where it's just affliction after affliction after affliction. But he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. I think the contrast lends it to my former understanding or interpretation that it's more of a self-affliction, bringing upon yourself the perpetual state of consciousness of evil, the evil within, the evil without. There's a growing evil in the earth, and so I want to warn you, don't stare too long at it. It will rot you from the inside out. Stare at Jesus. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, all glorious, all holy, all sovereign, all good. 
Look upon him. Look upon his plans for you. Look upon his suffering for you. Look upon his promises for you. Those things are certain. Everything in this world, uncertain. Uncertain. You've got to hold it loose because you don't know when it's going to be snatched out of your hands. Christ is certain. He is the truth. Hold fast to the truth. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Feasting upon Christ, the manna of heaven. Feasting upon God's eternal and amazing grace. Feasting upon the gift of faith that God has given you. Feasting upon the gift of repentance that God has given you. Feasting upon the gift of God's revelation of himself. This precious gift that you might know him, love him, serve him, and make him known. Feasting upon everything that's good and lovely and trustworthy and everything that Philippians says to focus on, to feast on. That which is not fool's gold. That which is not fool's food. But the food of saints. The food of God's saints. Being sanctified, renewed in the mind, through the washing of the water of the word. But he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. See, with a merry heart, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through obeying the Word of God and being anxious in nothing but in everything, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, you have a cheerful, you have a cheerful countenance and a continual feast. Feasting on heaven's food, not the devil's food. I know some of you like devil's food cake. Angel food cake. That's what you want. There is devil's food cake, right? That's a thing? I thought so, yeah. No, I'm not a baker. But you want angel's food cake. That's where it's at. That's what God has given us in Christ Jesus. He is the manna from heaven. And then all that's from Christ. Feast upon that. You have a continual feast, more than you could ever want in Christ Jesus. The banquet is set. The table is set before you. Just sit down and belly up to the table and feast upon what your Lord, your God, your Father who loves you and your Savior who died for you has provided. And He's given you the ability to partake of it through the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. So there is a brief exposition of Proverbs 15, 13 through 15. Specific application, Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug. Let us feast upon Christ at Christmas and all year long. The mouth of fools feeds on foolishness and is never truly satisfied, never truly satiated, always wanting. He who has True Christmas understanding, true gospel understanding, true biblical understanding has a continual feast at heaven's banquet table in Christ and of Christ. Most historians are deeply skeptical regarding December 25th. Sorry, sorry, I don't mean to let the cat out of the bag. But December 25th is almost certainly not Jesus' birthday. There is no direct biblical evidence of this date being Jesus' birthday and some evidence that would seem set against that date or even that season of the year. Ultimately, December 25th was chosen by the early church in Rome in the 4th century and they had a specific extra-biblical reason for choosing it that we'll get to. There were many worshipers of the sun at that time in mankind's history because of the simple and practical fact that they depended on the sun's annual cycle to grow crops and live, to stay alive. Most people held feasts at the time of the winter solstice in mid to late December, when the days were the shortest and darkest. It's said that they built massive fires to give the sun god strength and bring him back to life. When the days again grew longer and warmer, they would celebrate and they would see that, hey, it worked. We'll do that again next year. 
at winter solstice. That said, history records that Christ's birth was celebrated by the early church for at least 200 years before the 4th century, and likely long before that. As it would seem quite natural then as it does now for Christians to celebrate the grace of God in sending His Son into the world to save sinners. The church in Rome did not invent the celebration of the incarnation of God. Anyone who tells you they did is lying or ignorant. In the truest sense, neither Roman pagans nor the Roman Catholic Church invented Christmas. I'll not give nor let them have credit. If we look to the scriptures, we find the angels of heaven, the shepherds, wise men, Elizabeth, and Mary to be the earliest innovators of incarnation or Christmas celebration with special lights, joyous singing, and gift giving. The fourth century church merely decided to celebrate Christ's birth on the winter solstice in an attempt to Christianize the popular pagan celebrations. Does that mean it's wrong to celebrate the birth of Jesus? It does not. Is it wrong to worship a day? Yes, absolutely. Is it wrong to worship on any given day? No, absolutely not. Is it wrong to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ 365 days a year? No, it is most decidedly not. Did the pagans have lights? Yes. But not to celebrate Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Did the pagans sing? Yes, but not to worship the incarnate Son of God and celebrate Him coming into the world to save sinners. Did the pagans have gifts and give gifts? Yes, but not to remember and celebrate the love of God manifest to sinful mankind and the giving of the greatest gift possible. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin without sin, crucified for sinners, buried and resurrected on the third day to save sinners from the wrath of God. What about Christmas trees? Did pagans do things with trees? Yes. But it's believed that the first Christmas tree was introduced by Boniface, an English missionary to Germany in the 8th century. The somewhat sketchy historic records say he replaced Odin's sacred sacrificial oak with a fir tree decorated in honor and worship of Christ. Many understand the origin of the Christmas tree to come later from the great reformer himself, Martin Luther, who was said to be walking home at night, reveling in the glory of God evident through the stars twinkling down at him through the pine trees in the German forest. And was so moved by this that he cut down a tree and adorned it with candles for his children to enjoy at home during the celebration of Jesus' birth and the worship of he who made the stars and he who is the light of the world. The great reformer Martin Luther loved Christmas. He loved Christmas. Is there a debate amongst reformers as to whether Christmas is evil or Christmas is good? Yes. Can you find that debate on the pages of history? Yes. But the great reformer Martin Luther loved Christmas and celebrated it heartily. Luther loved Christmas advocated feast, gift-giving, and special church services. He wrote Christmas carols and delivered dozens of Christmas-related sermons. It may be significant that while Luther's Protestant Germany and the largely Catholic Bavaria and Austria have greatly enriched our Christmas music tradition, few, if any, famous Christmas carols come from Switzerland, which is directly adjacent to them. In fact, Messiah written in just 24 days by the devoutly Lutheran 18th century German composer George Frederick Handel, can be viewed as an expression of Luther's musical legacy. A former Catholic monk, Luther married the former nun Katharina von Bora in June 1525, and with his beloved Katie, established a happy marriage that became a model for subsequent Protestant homes and families. Effectively, together they invented the Protestant parsonage. 16th century German Protestants seem to have begun the tradition of erecting decorated Christmas trees in their homes, and some claim that Luther himself, as I've already said, originated the idea of placing lights or candles in the tree. 
Queen Victoria's German-born consort, Prince Albert, helped to make Christmas trees popular in England when he put one up in Windsor Castle. And thus the birth of the Christmas tree <coughs> spread through England and overseas to America and around the world. The great reformer loved Christmas. John Calvin, also a great reformer, was a bit of a Scrooge. Bah humbug, he would say to Christmas, as a day of worship, but not as a celebration, actually. And there are those that emphasize one side of history to the neglect of the other side. I don't want to do that. Um, But there's a strong message where Calvin comes out against Christmas celebrants who show up in a midweek service quite ready to celebrate Christmas, and he was just preaching Micah, I think it was, or something. And he brought a rebuke to their merriment. And there have been many excesses over the years in Christmas celebrations, and he wanted no part of that, and so he brought a rebuke to that. Nevertheless, he also said, John Calvin also said, quote, it is good to set aside one day out of the year in which we are reminded of all the good that has occurred because of Christ's birth in the world, and in which we hear the story of his birth retold. It is good, he said. He also, in a more official capacity, wrote to the ministerial powers that be in his day, saying, look, if churches want to celebrate Christmas, let them do so without division or strife. Let it be a matter of church conscience individually. It's nothing I'm going to pass law on. It's nothing I'm going to forbid in any official capacity. And so there are those that use John Calvin wrongly to... Beat down the Christmas merriment in Christians' hearts. And they ought not do so because it's not honest. It's not an honest take on history. Now, Zwingli is another matter. Zwingli was 100% anti-Christmas. He had a zeal burning in his heart against Christmas. In fact, he helped compel Oliver Cromwell to outlaw Christmas in Scotland, to make it illegal. And so you'll find amongst the Scottish reformers a lot of writing that is very anti-Christmas. But does that mean that that is the position we should adopt because godly men adopted it once upon a time? And I would say, first and foremost, it's a tertiary issue. Beware of making it a main issue. And I would say, secondly, just because godly men once adopted something doesn't mean it's still the position that we should adopt today or even that it was right in their day. Perhaps it was right in their day, but not in ours. What am I saying? Well, in their day, they're fighting against the tyranny of Roman Catholicism and the soul-damning false gospel that was dragging multitudes down to hell. In their day, I, I see a strong stand against all that smacked of Rome, Christ Mass. Anything in any way tainted by Rome, yes, we're putting that out and doing so decisively. But in today's celebration of Christmas, no one is thinking Christ's Mass, unless they're an ardent Roman Catholic, but even most Roman Catholics don't get it. They only show up at Christmas and Easter anyway. And so we are not celebrating a Roman Catholic Mass in any way, shape, or form. No, Christ is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. We are celebrating that he is seated at the right hand of the Father as the victorious Savior in the body that he took upon himself to come and suffer and die in for sinners. We're celebrating God's gift to us in that manger that was worthy of celebration. Worthy of celebration, right? We'll set a great light in the sky. We'll send angels to sing and celebrate. We'll send shepherds to celebrate. We'll send magi with gifts to celebrate. Worthy of celebration every single day, not just December 25th. And so, yes, there's a historic debate. Yes, the Reformers, many of them ended up siding very anti-Christmas in a Zwingli spirit. They went much further than John Calvin 
and they opposed Martin Luther, who kicked off the Reformation with his 95 Theses. So where should we land? Well, Pastor John MacArthur has a ministry called Grace to You, and the ministry was asked if Christians should celebrate Christmas given its origins. Here's their truncated answer. For the sake of time, I've cut it down just a bit. Grace to You says this, Scripture doesn't specifically command believers to celebrate Christmas. There are no prescribed holy days the church must observe. We believe celebrating Christmas is not a question of right or wrong, since Romans 14, 5-6 provides us with the liberty to decide whether or not to observe special days. Romans 14, 5-6 says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike, that each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. In other words, if you want to celebrate the birth of Jesus April 1st, go ahead and do it. It'd be far better use than what they're currently celebrating. If you want to celebrate it uh, May 12th, go ahead and do it then. If you want to celebrate it uh, November 3rd, that'd be a fine day too. If you want to celebrate it December 25th when everyone else is, the lights are already up, you know, decorations are already out, then by all means do so. Romans 14, 5-6 gives you the liberty to do so. And don't let anyone bind you up under their legalism. Coming with ideas that they'll put in fancy terms, and bind you up with. One of the terms they might use is regulatory principle. Under the regulatory principle, you must not do anything that Scripture has not explicitly commanded. Wow. That would be quite limiting if we applied that to all of life universally. The normative principle of worship is you are permitted to do all that which hasn't been forbidden. Which, of course, you could run amok with into licentiousness, but the other direction is legalism. And so I would exhort you to hold to the normative principle and keep it on the the train tracks of the, the biblical revelation. Not to look for license and to do all sorts of goofy things. You know, in the emergent movement, we've got people, you know, doing prayer postures during the preaching. They'll be up, you know, standing there doing some funky thing. Um, they'll, they'll be dancing on the side and whatnot, interpreting the Word of God through dance, and this distracting from the preaching of God's Word, which is clearly commanded to be the, the center of our gathering. Preach the Word for the edification of the saints, for the glory of God, for the equipping of the saints. Thus, we have a pulpit in the center of Christian churches that we might know God from the Word of God. Romans 14, 5 through 6, I think, is a pivotal text in this. The Grace to You ministry team continues their answer, should Christians celebrate Christmas. According to these verses, a Christian can rightly set aside any day, including Christmas, as the day as a day for the Lord. We believe Christmas affords believers with a great opportunity to exalt Jesus Christ. First, the Christmas season reminds us of the great truths of the Incarnation. Remembering important truths about Christ and the Gospel is a prevalent New Testament theme. Truth needs repetition because we so easily forget it. So we should celebrate Christmas to remember the birth of Christ and to marvel over the mystery of the Incarnation. Now, consider this. Do we want to go around being Christmas killjoys? And, and explain to everyone why we don't celebrate Christmas? Is that going to be a, a cheerful countenance? <laughs> or making the most of the opportunity that, that, like, the whole world seems to be celebrating Christmas, but they don't know what it's all about? And next week I'll be preaching a message that tells you how to uh, pivot that, if you will, uh, to do a good job and, and grabbing a hold of them and saying, well, what is that you're celebrating there? Hey, hey, you've stolen something that belongs to me as a Christian. Let me tell you the true glory of what you're celebrating. Let me tell you the eternal joy of what you're celebrating now and stealing just a bit of joy from.
Grace to you goes on. Christmas can also be a time for reverent worship. The shepherds glorified and praised God for the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. They rejoiced when the angels proclaimed that in Bethlehem was born a Savior, Christ the Lord. The babe laid in the manger that is our Savior, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Finally, people tend to be more open to the gospel during the Christmas holidays. We should take advantage of that openness to witness to them of the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. Imagine not giving Christmas cards or saying Merry Christmas to a non-believer who actually said Merry Christmas to you. Well, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't celebrate Christmas. You have a non-believer, it's Merry Christmas. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't celebrate Christmas. Um, is that a great start to our testimony? I, I don't see it so. But you don't celebrate Christmas. Most of the world's trying to cancel Christmas. It's happy holidays. It's happy cold weather. Have a good cold season. Have a good flu season. That's what we're coming to. And yet we have this opportunity to go and say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas with joy, with a merry countenance. We have opportunity to have a continual feast on Christ. Every twinkling light, every bit of red the light of the world, the blood of Christ. Green, he is life. In him is life. The tree, he created trees so that he might die on one. Finally, people tend to be more open to the gospel during the Christmas holidays. We should take advantage of that openness to witness to them of the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. Christmas is chiefly about the promise of the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. The holiday provides us with a wonderful opportunity to share this truth. Although our society has muddied the message of Christmas through consumerism, myths, and empty traditions, we should not let these distract us from appreciating the real meaning of Christmas. Let us take advantage of this opportunity to remember Him, worship Him, and faithfully witness of Him. End of their answer. Elsewhere, Pastor MacArthur answers the question, should Christians have Christmas trees? Oh, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. He says this, as the Christmas season approaches, questions like this sometimes arise. Like everything in life, it is important to approach these issues with biblical discernment. In this case, we see nothing wrong with the traditional Christmas tree. However, some have taught that it's wrong for anyone to have a Christmas tree in their home. But are their reasons valid? We don't think so. Let's look at the two most common objections people make against having a Christmas tree. First, Some object on the basis that Christmas trees have pagan origins. It is believed that Boniface, English missionary to Germany in the 8th century, instituted the first Christmas tree. He supposedly replaced sacrifices to the god Odin's sacred oak with a fir tree adorned in tribute to Christ. But certain other accounts claim that Martin Luther introduced the Christmas tree lighted with candles. Based on that information, you could say the Christmas tree has a distinguished Christian pedigree. However, Even if a pagan background were clearly established, that wouldn't necessarily mean we could not enjoy the use of a Christmas tree. Perhaps the following analogy will help. During World War II, the American military used some remote South Pacific islands for temporary landing strips and supply depots. Prior to that time, the indigenous tribal people had never seen modern technology up close. Large cargo planes swooped in, filled with an array of material goods, and for the first time, the islanders saw cigarette lighters, which they deemed to be miraculous. Jeeps, refrigerators, radios, power tools, and many varieties of food. When the war was over, the islanders concluded that the men who brought cargo were gods. So they began building shrines to the cargo gods. They hoped the cargo gods would return with more goods. Most people do not even know about this religious superstition. Similarly, few know anything about the worship of trees. When a child pulls a large present out from under the Christmas tree and unwraps a large model cargo plane, no one views that object as an idol, neither the plane nor the tree. Nor do we view the Christmas tree to be some kind of gift god. 
We understand the difference between a toy and an idol just as clearly as we understand the difference between an idol and a Christmas tree. We see no valid reason to make any connection between Christmas trees and wooden idols or the worship of trees. Those who insist on making such an association should take note of the warnings in Scripture against judging one another in doubtful things. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33. Another common objection is the claim that Christmas trees are prohibited in Scripture. Jeremiah 10 is commonly used to support this viewpoint, but a closer look at the passage will show that it has nothing to do with Christmas trees and everything to do with idol worship. Verse 8 says, A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Now, idolatry is serious. You know what else is serious? Accusing everyone of idolatry. And idolatry is such an easy sin to accuse folks of. You're idolizing your car. You're an idolater of your car. You're an idolater of your house. You're an idolater of your job. You're an idolater of your husband or your wife or your kids. You're an idolater of your education. You're an idolater of your pocketbook. You're committing idolatry. And the idolatry legalist police, they come about. They've come through and they've gone. Many times. I don't think we've been successful in winning one of them away from their legalism. Oh, we've got a hand. Praise God, we won one. But you were, you were newborn to the, that legalistic mindset. And you were newborn in Christ. And so you grew in sanctification. Those that are steadfast in it, they've long been steeped in it. It's a sour disposition. It is the contrary position of a merry heart that makes a cheerful countenance. And I have not yet seen anyone set free of it. I haven't. Once it gets in them and takes a grip in them and they come in here to square us all away with it, they don't get free of it. They just move on to square the next church away and the next church away. Or eventually they have home church, which means they just stay home. (laughs) And so guard yourself from that. And guard yourself from the messengers of this behavior and mindset and doctrine. Notice the direction I went. Behavior, mindset, doctrine. Guard yourself from it online. I did a little more research than I've done in years past on this. I preached a similar message last year on this topic. Went a little deeper this year. And the anti-Christmas bah humbug professing Christian group has grown. It's growing. And they're zealous. And they freely give out their rebukes. And they come with pseudo-history, very zealous. Or they come with true history, but again, very zealous. If Zwingli did it, you better do it too. (laughs) And that's not where we want to be. Again, No one has to celebrate Christmas. No one has to. Should you celebrate the birth of Christ? Yes. Should you be bound up by someone beating you over the head with a a regulative principle? Saying, you can't celebrate Christmas because the Bible doesn't command it. Well, the Bible doesn't command you to celebrate a lot of the facets of God's glory and God's work, and yet you should worship Him for all of the facets of His glory and His work. And since we see the angels celebrating the birth of Christ and the shepherds celebrating the birth of Christ and the wise men celebrating the birth of Christ and, you know, much of the Bible is prophecy leading up to the birth of Christ. It seems to be a pivotal issue that the whole world's waiting for and celebrating. I think we should celebrate it more heartily than everyone else. And I'm more of that conviction than ever. I'm ready to stand in the middle of the store and say, Merry Christmas! More so than ever. And this dark world needs it. They need it. Should I walk into the store full of, often the very hymns we just sang, (laughs) celebrating the incarnation of Christ, and be sour about that, be put out by that? Oh, this Christmas consumerism is so bad. It's idolatry. Or should I walk in and say, Praise God. There are songs full of the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ being played in the marketplace. And even, praise God, there are fun and silly songs full of joy that you don't find like anywhere else. All this joy. Where's that joy coming from? Even the silly songs. 
I'll even contend for them. Where's all that joy coming from? Where's all this compulsion to make all these sweet treats and wonderful, tasty morsels to get together and feast? Oh, it's all pagan. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's why there's such hatred of Christmas. Oh, they want to have a winter solstice. Desperately. You force them to have Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) And tell them all about the Savior. Pastor MacArthur was on. Idol worship was a clear violation of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. If you're actually bowing down and worshiping the Christmas tree, yeah, you're in trouble. That's idolatry. Don't do that. If you have a problem with that, don't have a Christmas tree. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think those that are apt to accuse that because you bow down to it to get the get. No, we're not bowing down to it. That's nonsense. I don't bow down to my car as an idol when I check the tires either. Nonsense. Bad arguments. Bad logic. And the internet's full of it. There is no connection between the worship of idols and the use of Christmas trees, says Pastor MacArthur. We should not be anxious about baseless arguments against Christmas decorations. Rather, we should be focused on the Christ of Christmas and giving all diligence to remembering the real reason for the season. In other words, the decorations are generally fun, whatever, bright, happy, but that's not the heart of it. Um, Christ is, of course, but let, let's not get caught up in, where, oh, that decoration, somebody once did something similar in some pagan cult somewhere. And? If you just came out of that cult, then maybe you don't want to do that. Right? If you're tempted to go back into some cult that doesn't even exist, uh, but some group, some religion that doesn't exist today, but you're going to reinvent it because, wow, you did some research um, and uh, the, the Christmas tree is calling to you, uh, then by all means, um, forgo it. But that's going to be an extremely rare circumstance. For the most part, we should just celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ, and do so heartily with all due decorations. When, I mean, now, unfortunately, sadly, Halloween is becoming this great, great, massive holiday where everyone's decorating. But it used to be Christmas stood out where people went to great lengths to decorate. And to celebrate. And in many ways, it it still is the holiday of the year. I think if you asked anyone, what's the biggest holiday of the year? Christmas. At least in the Western world. As it should be. As it should be. The incarnation of Christ should be the biggest holiday, holy day of the year. And when they want to say holiday and not Christmas, oh, well, by the way, that word you used, holiday. I said Christmas, you said holiday. Why? Do you know what that word means? Holiday? Holy day? What makes it a holiday, a holy day? Oh, Christ. Christmas. Jesus. That's what makes it a holy day. Amen. Holy day. All right. We're running out of time. From time to time, in good conservative Christian circles, and this is in your bulletin, there are bah humbug Christmas killjoys who rise up to crush your Christmas joy, saying Charles Spurgeon didn't celebrate Christmas. And I've had that bashed over my head years ago. Um, and, and people sometimes, or usually, they, they are convinced of that. And so they, they will use that, because Charles Spurgeon is a go-to name in Christian circles, and he ought to be. He ought to be. Let not your heart be troubled. Like many faithful men in his day, Charles Spurgeon had reservations about the celebration of Christmas. They lived closer to the Reformation by date and proximity than we do today. And the Roman Catholic Church held much sway in England and in the origin and celebration of Christmas. 
Spurgeon's sermons regarding Christmas reflect his genuine concern for the gospel and the purity of the church. Nevertheless, in his December 24th, 1854 sermon titled The Birth of Christ, he ended his sermon saying, quote, Now a happy Christmas to you all. And it will be a happy Christ- and it will be a happy Christmas if you have God with you. I shall say nothing today against festivities on this great birthday of Christ. We will tomorrow think of Christ's birthday. We shall be obliged to do it, I am sure. However sturdily we may hold to our rough Puritanism. And so let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do not feast as if you wish to keep the feast of Bacchus. Do not live tomorrow as if you adored some heathen divinity. Feast, Christians, feast. You have a right to feast. Go to the house feasting tomorrow. Celebrate your Savior's birth. Do not be ashamed to be glad. You have a right to be happy. Solomon says, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink the wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Religion never was designed to make your pleasures less. Recollect that your master ate butter and honey. Go your way, rejoice tomorrow, but in your feasting think of the man in Bethlehem. Let him have a place in your hearts. Give him the glory. Think of the virgin who conceived him, but think most of all of the man born, the child given. I finish by saying a happy Christmas to you all. End of quote. Charles Spurgeon. Don't let anyone beat you over the head saying Charles Spurgeon was against Christmas. How dare you celebrate Christmas? That's a lie. It's just not true. That does not take the entire ministry of the Prince of Preacher, Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, into account, but just a portion of his ministry. He evolved from his Puritanism, I would say, to a more biblical position, the same position that Pastor John MacArthur holds today. Actually, he went further yet, further yet. Uh, In an article about Charles Spurgeon and Christmas, meant to combat the abuses of Spurgeon. It says, it's true, Charles Spurgeon had a love-hate relationship with Christmas. In the 17th century, England, Christmas was often associated with moral laxity and splurging. The Puritans resisted the Roman Catholic flavor of the festivities, and so did Spurgeon. Like his predecessors, the preacher often played the Scrooge and humbugged the holiday. Certainly, he says, this is a quote of Spurgeon, certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but I abhor it, whether it be said or sung in Latin or English. And secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant, whatever, for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. And consequently, its observance is a superstition because it is not of divine authority. So Spurgeon said that and what I just read to you moments ago. Spurgeon was sanctified out of a more legalistic position into a biblical position, I would argue. A Romans 14 position. When the spirit of your age is one of Puritanism, when the spirit of your age is one of Reformation, of a Zwingli disposition, not a Luther disposition, not even a Calvin disposition, then you tend to go along with that until maybe a little life, a little experience, and the Word of God have their way with you. And then you think, well, maybe, maybe that was overly zealous or outright legalistic. And I should put that off. And that's what happened with Spurgeon. Spurgeon loved Christmas. When Spurgeon's grandfather was a boy, Christmas had fallen out of fashion among low church traditions. However, as a child in the 1840s, Charles saw a total revitalization of the holiday in his nation. Spurgeon was nine years old when Charles Dickens published A Christmas Carol a story highlighting the struggles of the working class and putting a premium on generosity and selflessness. Spurgeon loved this best-selling story and even purchased a copy to include in his personal library. Spurgeon and Dickens both understood the difficulties of their day and worked hard to help the marginalized. They both also shared an intimate knowledge of London's poverty-stricken Southwark. 
In fact, Dickens' father was imprisoned only a few blocks from where Spurgeon's new Park Street Chapel stood. When Spurgeon was 14 years old, Queen Victoria and her German husband, Albert, brought new life to Christmas. Spurgeon was a young man when the Christmas tree really was born. In 1848, the Illustrated London News published a picture of the royal family gathered around a Christmas tree. When he moved to London in 1854, Spurgeon's puritanical reservations about Christmas were confronted with a new emphasis, the importance of family. Here are a few more quotes from Spurgeon. Though I have no respect to the religious observance of the day, yet I love it as a family institution. God forbid I should be such a Puritan as to proclaim the annihilation of any day of rest which falls to the lot of the laboring man. I wish there were a half dozen holidays in the year. Throughout Spurgeon's adulthood, the celebration of Christmas, like England itself, evolved. Newly laid railroads allowed Victorians to travel home for the holiday. Toys once handmade could now be mass-produced. Because of the penny post, Christmas cards could be mailed cheaply. The Victorians loved their turkeys. Butchers often hung the birds outside their shops throughout the last few weeks of of December. Local markets even allowed customers to deposit money throughout the year into a personal Christmas fund. Spurgeon participated in holiday festivities and celebrated Christmas Day with the children of his famed orphanage. Get this, he even dressed up like Santa Claus and personally distributed Christmas gifts to his orphans. But most of all, Spurgeon leveraged the holiday for the gospel. He saw Christmas as an opportunity to tell an old, old story about the grandest light in history, a light that dawned only decades before the sun first shone on the new fort of Londonium in A.D. 43. Here are a few thoughts from Spurgeon about Christmas. Remember the miracle of Christmas. Quote, The infinite has become infant. Mary took the Lord in her arms. Oh, that you may bear him in yours. Ah, Christians, ring the bells of your hearts. Fire the salute of your most joyous songs. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Dance, oh my heart, and ring out, oh peals of gladness. Ye drops of blood within my veins. Dance, every one of you. Oh, all my nerves become harp strings, and let gratitude touch you with angelic fingers. Don't tell me Spurgeon didn't love Christmas. Secondly, remember the message of Christmas. Quote, For this child is not born to you unless you are born to this child. The birth of Christ should be the subject of supreme joy. No forms of etiquette are required in entering a stable. So if you desire to come to Christ, you may come to Him just as you are. Come to Him, ye that are weary and heavy laden. Come to Him, ye that are broken in spirit, ye who are bowed down in soul. Come to Him, publican and harlot. Come to Him, thief and drunkard. In the manner, in the manger there He lies, unguarded from your touch, unshielded from your gaze, Bow the knee and kiss the Son of God. Accept Him as your Savior, for He puts Himself into that manger that you may approach Him. Never mind what the past has been. He can forget and forgive. Third, remember the meaning of Christmas. Quote, When God stoops down to man, it must mean that man is to be lifted up to God. Behold, how rich and how abundant are the provisions which God has made for the high festival which He would have His servants keep, not now and then, but all the days of their lives. O blessed thought, the star of Bethlehem shall never set. Jesus, the fairest among ten thousand, the most lovely among the beautiful, is joy forever. Fourth, remember the mission of Christmas. Quote, Come then. I will try to argue with you, to induce you to do so, that I may send you home this Christmas day to be missionaries in the, in the localities to which you belong and to be real preachers, though you are not so by name. When you are at home on Christmas day, let no one see your face till God has seen it. Be up in the morning, wrestle with God, and if your friends are not converted, wrestle with God for them. You must keep this Christmas by telling your fellow men what God's own Holy Spirit has seen fit to reveal to you. It is not office, it is earnestness, it is not position, it is grace which will enable us to glorify God. Tell out what God has written within. There is the little cluster round the hearth on Christmas night. There is the little congregation in the workshop. There is a little audience somewhere to whom you might tell out of Jesus' love to the lost ones. How dare we humbug Christmas! We show up to those gatherings wherever they might be. We must be those with the greatest merriment. 
the greatest joy. Would we make it our mission to humbug Christmas or to preach Christ at Christmas when they're so close to the truth but eternally far away? Fifth, remember the ministry of Christmas. Express your joy first as the angels did by public ministry. Now, old gentleman, you won't take your son in. He has offended you. Fetch him at Christmas. Make peace in your family. If you have room for Christ, then from this day forth, remember, the world has no room for you. I wish everybody that keeps Christmas this year would keep it as the angels kept it. Set an example to others how to behave on that day. Especially since the angels gave glory to God, let us do the same. Find something wherewith to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and make glad the mourner. Remember it. It is goodwill towards men. Try, if you can, to show them goodwill at this special season. And if you will do that, the poor will say with me that indeed they wish there were six Christmases in the year. Don't tell me Charlie Spurgeon was against Christmas. If we are angry all year round... This next week shall be an exception. That if we have snarled at everybody this last year, this Christmas time, we will strive to be kindly affectionate to others. And if we have lived all this year at enmity with God, I pray that by His Spirit, may this week give us peace with Him. I will say no more except to close this sermon to wish every one of you, when the day shall come, the happiest Christmas you have ever had in your lives. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we pray that this heart full of the love of Jesus, full of the love of perishing sinners, full of the love of saints, full of the love of Christmas, the celebration of Christ. Fully God, becoming man to die for sinners. That this heart, Lord, would dwell in us. That our hearts would be merry and our countenance with them. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.